Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's full-on festival time in the state that knows how to fest better than most. Except, once again, due to pandemic restrictions, there are no fests. There is festing in place and lots of opportunities to recreate fest taste memories as well, with local restaurants whipping up everything from cheesy crawfish bread to high-proof strawberry lemonade. On this week's show, we're doing our part to help you hang on until the promised festing begins again this fall. From Acadian black pots to Mississippi Delta tamales, we're hosting the ultimate virtual food fest on this week's Louisiana Eats. Since 2005, the annual Black Pot Festival and Cook-Off has been luring visitors to Lafayette, Louisiana for a celebration of Cajun culture and cooking. The two-day campout style event typically takes place in late October and features over 30 bands across three stages. But the main draw is the cast iron vessel cooking competition, where both amateurs and professionals gather to show off their black pot prowess for judges and festival goers alike. Not counting last year's festival, which was done virtually amid the pandemic, black pot has seen a notable growth in attendance and popularity since it first began 15 years ago. And today, holds an international reputation. So why the explosion of interest? While there may not be a simple explanation, one thing is for sure. Cajun culture is cool these days. Over the past several decades, the folks of Southwest Louisiana have embraced their Acadian heritage in all sorts of ways, whether it's speaking the language, playing the music, or cooking the food. Perhaps that's because as little as two generations ago, Cajun culture was under attack. Born in 1936 in the heart of the Cajun prairie, here's master accordion maker Larry Miller of Iota. When I was a kid, we were kind of careful not to play our music in front of non-Cajun people because you kind of felt like you were not so smart if you didn't speak you know, standard American English. So we were kind of ashamed of our music and our culture until we outsiders began to tell us how much of a rich culture and an attractive music and an interest in lifestyle we had and that kind of thing. And and the cooking has been one of the one of the attract not just the music and dance, but uh, the cooking has been one of the one of the attractions. Larry stood in front of the main stage and dance hall at the Black Pot Festival and Cook Off in 2014. 
Skies were clear on that October morning, and the smell of a nutty roux bubbled up from a pot behind the Black Pot Pro. Booths rimmed the perimeter of the fairgrounds, where each contestant prepared to compete with their very own Black Pot. One contender was Ryan Trahan. Back then, he was owner of Dark Roux, a local restaurant he ran with Corey Bourgeois. Both men were busy preparing their cast iron cookware for battle. Most people's pots are just as important to them as, I guess, say their wives or some of them really, really get married to their to their pots. And Big Lou that we were talking with the other night, he's had pots for 30 years and he loves them and he has pots that he uses for one specific thing only. And it's just all a matter of personal preference. The annual competition is divided into five categories. Cracklins, jambalaya, gumbo, dessert, and gravy, which includes any kind of sauce, like sauce piquant. While both Ryan and Corey had done their fair share of festival cooking, Corey explained that this was their first black pot cook-off. We borrowed this black pot from Curtis Louvier, who's uh, very, very knowledgeable and has been doing this for years. And so I went over my game plan with him last night, and he was very, very helpful with just little tips here and there. And I, that's what I love about like the community we have, like say, like um, just being able to ask each other for advice. I ask Jeremy all the time. He's he's been doing this longer than I have. People like that are really good to be friends with because they. Those weird little things that you ask questions about, they've probably done or, or not done. The Jeremy that Corey was referring to was their friend Jeremy Connor, a six-foot-something beast of a man positioned just to the right of the dark ruse booth. Spoon in hand, Jeremy was staring deeply into his gumbo pot, transfixed on his roux. This is this is one of the most fun parts of making a gumbo is when the roux is almost dark enough and you just get to smell it and play with it. This is the best part. When you're cooking for a lot of people, this is the best way to make gumbo. Uh, when we make gumbo at the restaurant, we use aluminum and stainless steel cookware. But uh, you know, in a in a situation like this where uh, you want to you want to prepare a large sort of rustic meal for a whole lot of people at once, this is the way to go. And and you don't get these kind of results with any other other way to cook. That connection to black pots runs deep, real deep. John Vedrine, a seasoned black pot veteran, remembered his grandmother's kitchen being an arsenal of black pots, with one special pot for every special dish. Black pots in our family are the treasures that we pass on. My son is going to inherit my pots. I inherited a couple of them, and in fact, I can remember it's like when she, you know, I hated to see her pass, but you know, I can remember the family getting together and say, so which pot do you want? I want the sauce pot, you know, <laughs> or I want the fry pot. And so I got the sauce pot. <laughs> now, as far as the cook-off was concerned, it quickly became clear that it was a competition in the loosest sense of the word. I honestly, I've been coming for, let's see, like six years now, and I don't, I never know who the winner is. Competitors pay a minimum $50 entrance fee and compete for a $150 cash prize. Even in a winning scenario, there's no way that the $100 spread could recoup their expenses. 
that goes double when you're moved by the spirit of generosity. J.D. Regard arrived early that morning with beignets and old fashions, free for the taking. In the bar alone, I've got about $450 invested today. And we, we have a lot of people coming to Black Pot from all parts of the country. New York, just today, New York, Vermont, Wisconsin, Germany, France. It, it's amazing. And uh, we love sharing. We brought lots of booze, lots of food. We, you know, the folks that are giving it away don't get paid for this. You know, we're out here giving it away. But that's what makes this particular festival, I think, one of the most unique festivals in the state of Louisiana. Among the festival goers we spoke with that day was a retired couple from Switzerland. They were visiting Brobridge and moseyed on over after reading about the festival in the paper. We are surprised how happy the people are. And young and old is dancing and having a good time. That's the most important in life. Huh? I couldn't have said it any better myself. But if you were to ask any of the locals, they'd tell you why that vibe isn't out of the ordinary. It's just, it's very family oriented, not in the sense of, you know, fun jumps and things like that, but it's people who know each other and who have uh, traditions and more or less a philosophy in common of doing things from the ground up. You know, these guys to the left of us, they're going to be making cracklins and beignets and sauce piquant and I don't know what all. And they do that every weekend for family. So it's just doing it in public. It's very normal. This is very normal for South Louisiana. As the square dance was livening up, Jeremy Connor and the guys from Dark Rue were still in their booths, stirring the pots. Jeremy had just received some surprising news. Well, uh, I've heard they sold 4,000 tickets, and I'm not intending to come anywhere close to feeding all of them, but uh, but yeah, as many as many as we can get get food in their mouths, that's what that's what we're gonna do. Meanwhile, Ryan was working on a backbone stew while Corey patiently stirred that roux. But both seemed more preoccupied with their plan for the cook-off's final category. I think our dessert is gonna be the one that catches most people's eyes with the, um, Ryan made a um, chocolate uh, ganache-filled donut that, that we're gonna fry in our crackling grease and then we're gonna make a vanilla bean ice cream with our liquid nitrogen. The only rule is it has to be cooked in a black pot, so we're going to follow that. More on that liquid nitrogen in a moment. But first, I want to go back to my initial question. Why have attendance numbers been going up since Black Pot's inception? Walking around and speaking with locals, it's hard not to be moved by their generous spirit and passion for preserving cultural traditions. And as far as the cook-off, while you may hear a friendly bit of trash talk, it's clear that the desire for community far outweighs the competition. Who wouldn't want to join in this kind of fun? According to accordion maker Larry Miller, whom we heard from earlier, outside influence is actually something that helped save Cajun culture. 
He explained that when he was growing up in the 40s, Cajuns were chastised for celebrating their heritage. So we were kind of ashamed of our music and our culture until we outsiders began to tell us how much of a rich culture and an attractive music and an interest in lifestyle we had and that kind of thing. And, and so they would come here and listen to the music and, and get into it almost like they, they sort of belong to, you know, to uh, an identity that they didn't feel like they didn't have. So those people began to make us realize that we had a, a rich culture that we shouldn't throw it away. So we, we were throwing it away for a while, and then we sort of came back on. For Larry, a festival like Black Pot gives tourists a chance to experience the culture and gives locals a way to share that culture with others. The end result is that this festival is known for sort of a, of a giant hospitality element in there because, because for the last uh, three, four hours, they've been people have been building around talking to our people here, and I know they've, they're doing every. I've been noticing they're they're at every booth, kind of meeting people and just kind of sizing up the the, the food preparation and and the cultural aspects of it. So that's why this little festival has been growing very fast. Now at this point, hundreds of people were gathered between the booths and the atmosphere was getting rambunctious. The guys at Dark Rue were feeling the pressure of the clock, but they were keeping a cool head on their shoulders. It's coming along very well. Um, we had to kind of cut our Rue time down and not get it as dark as we wanted because we, we were running out of time. But I'm um, really happy with everything right now. They're about to start getting uh, frying chicken over there ready. We're gonna uh, top each bowl of gumbo with some fried chicken. Before long, the birds were ready and dinner was served. Come on down, folks! Gumbo and fried chicken! But the crew had one more trick up their sleeve. Wait, you forgot about the ice cream, man. I'm gonna go slower on this one. Too fast. You get, you're burning me. I have no idea how they pull this one off. Using traditional ingredients, a black pot, liquid nitrogen, and a huge hand blender they lifted over their shoulders, the guys at Dark Rue drew an enormous crowd of spectators. Now, you see all the air we got in this one? Yep, I see you. I got you. All right, who wants to lick it? <laughs> As the food rolled out, the attendees were satiated, and the twinkle of twilight began to set in. There was only one thing left to do. <laughs> I feel like shots are in order now. Let's do it. Shots are in order. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Successful. All right. Who wants some? <laughs> the winners were announced, and Jeremy Connor was in that number. That night, everybody packed the dance floor, and then the real party was on. That was the Black Pot Festival and Cook-Off Experience in Lafayette, Louisiana from 2014. Every Mother's Day weekend, Brennan's Restaurant hosts a turtle parade, billed as the slowest second line on earth. Coming up next, 
Louisiana Eats takes you to the party. Terrific turtles and Mother's Day merriment abound after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. With a history dating back to 1946, Brennan's Restaurant is home to several long-running traditions. Today, diners can enjoy Brennan's world-famous breakfast and Bananas Foster, just as they did over a half-century ago. The New Orleans mainstay also has a reputation for its high-spirited style and flair, an atmosphere established by founder Owen Brennan and cultivated by his sister Ella. Since renovating and reopening Brennan's in 2014, current owners, Ralph Brennan and Terry White, have started some new traditions while keeping up that spirit of fun. Perhaps the most whimsical is an annual event that celebrates 10 turtles who inhabit the fountain pool in Brennan's patio. In what's been dubbed the slowest second line on earth, these tranquil terrapins are paraded on handmade wagon floats through the streets of the French Quarter, led by a brass band and police escort. Upon arrival at Brennan's, the crew of turtles rolls down a custom-made green carpet into the courtyard. Here, the party really gets started, as General Manager Christian Pendleton sabers a bottle of champagne for the raucous crowd. Welcome back to Brennan's, everyone, and just think, everywhere else in the country, it's just a Saturday right now. This Mother's Day weekend marks the sixth year of the event, which was canceled last year because of the pandemic. Though the turtles won't be rolling through the quarter this time around, content to just promenade around the Brennan's patio that day, all the rest of the fun will take place next Saturday, May 8th, including the Tipsy Turtle Happy Hour, Turtle Blessing, and Pardoning. Oh, and if you dine at Brennan's that day, there's even a special chocolate turtle offered for dessert. In 2019, Special Projects Manager Reggie Morris attended the reception and spoke with some of the people who make the event possible. 
So I'm Ralph Brennan. I am the co-proprietor of Brennan's Restaurant. And today we're celebrating turtles. My name is Simone Rathley and I am the PR consultant for Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group. And I had the privilege of being able to write topsy-turvy history and 10 tiny turtles. When we took over the restaurant, we inherited 10 turtles and uh, we didn't know that. So we came over one day and discovered them. We decided to do some major renovation to the building and the contractor said, you need to move the turtles because we're going to make a lot of mess here and it's not good for the turtles. So they moved to the West Bank, to Algiers Point, to stay with Haley Bitterman and her family. Haley's the executive chef of our company. And we thought they were going to be gone six months and they wound up being gone 16 months because that's how long the renovation took. And so we decided, because you know we love parades in New Orleans, we decided to celebrate the return of the turtles to the pond here in Brennan's where they lived for many, many years. And we did a parade. And we parade about eight blocks from our office on the other side of the quarter up to Jackson Square and back here and just come in and have a celebration. Well, the turtles definitely had to be celebrated coming back because they were a part of the history of Brennan's. They had been in there, but really not talked about as much, not as a fixture of what the whole history of Brennan's is. So we wanted to really shine the light on them. What are the other festivities that are going on around the Turtles? I noticed there were some hors d'oeuvres and uh, some drinks and that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, you, you need a little food and beverage to celebrate here. And so we just make some cocktails, some of our famous cocktails here, like our Caribbean Milk Punch and Bloody Mary. And we're, we're passing hors d'oeuvres. And we'll do that for another hour or so. But we, we invite uh, people to come in, and, and people come from all over. Some people even bring their own turtles with them. Uh, some people just told me a few minutes ago that, you know, this is like their fourth year coming. Uh, a gentleman told me today that he brought his mother. His mother came in for Mother's Day tomorrow, and she's from San Diego, and he brought her over here to celebrate, and he's been here several years. And what we do in the courtyard, we've done this for a while, is because we kind of bless just about everything here in Louisiana. A friend of ours, Monsignor Nalty from St. Stephen's Church uptown, comes over and gives a blessing for the turtles. And then we have a, a judge, uh, her name is Lauren Lemon. She comes in and pardons the turtles. Kind of like the president does for the turkeys on Thanksgiving. May I have your attention, please? My name is Lauren Lemon, and I am a judge in St. Charles Parish. Well, this is the fifth turtle parade and the fourth pardoning. I have done the pardonings from the beginning, and it's been an honor. The privilege is mine. And I write these poems. That's been the way I've done it. And so I decided this year to do something different. So last night, my phone rang. I had a call from Mr. B, but it was the turtles. The turtles called me and said, we're scheming. And what, what did the turtles have to say? The turtles said, you know, we're pretty upset and we're tired of being afraid. They said, this is their home. And they mustered up some courage and decided to turn the pardon around to Mr. Brennan and the people. And so they wrote this rap song for me. I've never rapped in my life before except to my children. And I can't say I'm good at it. But with the crowd participation, it worked out okay. Yeah.
so here goes. Y'all ready? Yeah. We are the turtles and we're here to stay. very surprised um, about a revolt of the turtles well hmm is that going to be something maybe of a second book I'm not sure but it was quite inspiring for the author who's talking right now she surprised all of us uh, Judge Lemon normally you know does a regular pardon and today she turned the tide on us she did a great job uh, I, actually when I told her how good of a job she did after she did it. I said, when you go to one of your judicial conferences, you ought to get up there and explain the law like you did today. <laughs> she was wonderful. But still, they're in good company. They're fed well. I don't see that revolt. She's causing a little trouble. We're going to have to have a talk with Judge Lemon. So there won't be any turtle soup, at least not with the turtles from the fountain this year. No, these turtles are safe. They'll never be in the turtle soup. I'll tell you a secret. I love Brennan's turtle soup. <laughs> I'm from South Louisiana. I grew up on the bayou, and we have pet turtles, and we eat turtle soup. We have pet rabbits, and we eat rabbit, and the list goes on. My grandmother, I have a video of her that I cherish. It's a black and white video where she is cleaning a big snapping turtle, and her husband, my grandfather, is wiping her brow with a handkerchief and feeding her her old fashioned while she is cleaning the turtle for the best turtle soup in the world. So we've had many turtle soups in our lives and I've actually turtle hunted before. But these particular turtles will never be soup. All right, thanks everybody, have a good time. If we can get the kids down here to help us put the turtles back in the pond in their home, that'd be great, help us out. Judge Lauren Lemon, Ralph Brennan, and Simone Rathley at the 2019 Turtle Parade at Brennan's Restaurant, speaking with Louisiana Eats' very own Reggie Morris. would a root vegetable get its very own parade. Sweet potatoes are grown in the gardens of Arthur Ashe Charter School, one of the five edible schoolyards in the city. On the eve of the harvest, students, parents, teachers, and neighbors gather in the Gentilly Garden for the annual Sweet Potato Fest. There you'll find both children and grown-ups parading around in vegetable costumes as they gather crops and celebrate all things sweet potato. Former Louisiana Eats producer Sarah Holtz joined the festivities back in 2016 and sent along this postcard. Roll out. 
Assembo! Dolphos, cool Assembo! My name's Amelia Bird. I'm the Volunteer Special Events and Communications Manager for Edible Schoolyard New Orleans. My first year working with Edible Schoolyard was the first year of Sweet Potato Fest. It was created by one of our former garden teachers here at Ash, Megan McHugh. And she just wanted to have parents and families come out to help harvest the sweet potato beds. And so it sort of grew from there to involve more and more sweet potato foods for people to try, recipes, um, more physical activity in a really fun, joyful way. Uh, the parade really helps get people out and celebrates the season and celebrates our favorite tasty tuber, the sweet potato. Our mission is to teach children to make healthy connections through food. What I love about that is that there are so many things you can connect to through food. I'm thinking about its power also in culture and in bringing people together. I'm Abby Cassidy and I'm volunteering. I'm Jonathan Clark and I'm also volunteering. <laughs> yeah, so I guess today we're seeing a lot of tents. There's all these different stations where you can make sweet potato smoothies. There's um, harvest area where you can see people dig up the sweet potatoes. They're going to put away like the weirdest or the biggest or the smallest and people can guess the weight and, and it's really neat. It's, it's amazing to see what they've done even in just one year, how much it's grown, I think. so. Great. And it's actually a stationary bike over there with a blender on it. So they're going to put sweet potatoes in a blender and someone's going to bike it and they're going to make sweet potato smoothies. So that sounds really, really cool too. And let's not forget the pollinator bike right here. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Crew to pollinators. Yeah, so there's different, there's different crews, crews for the parade. And one of the crews is the pollinator crew. So it has bees and flowers and um, different things like that. We're actually part of the compost crew. What? What? <laughs> Woo! Yeah, yeah. And then there's also the crew to tater to celebrate the sweet potato. <laughs> or sweet potatoes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm dressed as a cockroach, or what you might call a water bug, I guess, if you didn't want to admit that you had cockroaches kind of running around in your house. Uh, my name is Jason Madden. Um, I work for First Line Schools as well, and I actually worked uh, for a part of a year at ESY uh, here at Ash last year. Which crew are you going to be in? Uh, the decomposers. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, because the cockroach is a decomposer. So uh, I'm excited. I'm Alicia Johnson. I'm with Edible Schoolyard in New Orleans. It's the um, Arthur Ashe uh, marching band. And so this is like one of the first events that they do to get ready for Mardi Gras. Like one of the first official parades that they march in is this one, the Sweet Potato Fest parade around the neighborhood. And so you have a lot of neighbors come out and enjoy it. So it should be fun. Yeah, it's a good time. All around har uh, seasonal harvest, you know, which is exciting that the kids actually have grown the potatoes and now they get to come out with their families and, and enjoy it. So. These are things that they may or may not have turned up their nose at, you know, except that now they're growing them and so they're willing to try them. And then when they cook them in healthy and creative ways, they're actually enjoying it. And, um, and so we've had children go back to their parents and say, we had kale today and I want us to buy more kale, you know. And that's not a New Orleans thing. Like, we don't know kale. I mean, yeah, we know kale now, but like a few years ago, that just wasn't one of the holy trinity, you know, so, but now, uh, but, you know, but with constant exposure, children are learning things 
uh, and, and, and tasting and ta um, taking healthy risk with with um, healthy foods that they might not have otherwise have been exposed to. Um, I'm the garden teacher. I'm the lead garden instructor, Ron, Ron Brody. Um, yeah, and I've been around for seven years. It's been a long time coming for this space because we only had the small culinary garden um, to, to run our classes in. But now we have all of this, and I'm super grateful. They're clearing, they're clearing it out, um, and now I can, I'm, I'm just starting to think about my lesson plans for next week and, and how we can um, plan what to plant. For the, for the upcoming season, so it's pretty good. Hi. Uh, she's in fifth. Yeah, she's been going here for like three years. It's awesome. I've, every year I come here. I think it's a great way, you know, to get the kids out of the house and doing something instead of being inside on, on a computer or on playing games, you know? It's really great. Ah, okay. I am uh, Sean Augustine's grandfather. Yes. So he started in kindergarten, now he's in second grade, and uh, I love this festival. I really and truly do. I love it because, uh, one, it brings people together. It brings them outside. Also, their minds are opened up to the very, very many things you could do with something as simple as a sweet potato. They're making pizzas. They're making muffins. Uh, wow. Wow. Food doesn't come from supermarkets. It comes from the ground. It's their happy place. If you ask a lot of our students, you can ask them where their magic spot in the garden is and they'll probably have one. Food is a loaded thing and to just bring joy and positive associations with different healthy foods is, is a really important thing. And yeah, joy is, joy is not to be underestimated. <laughs> Sounds from Edible Schoolyard Sweet Potato Fest in 2016, produced by former contributor Sarah Holtz. What is the difference between masa harina and cornmeal? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes. Available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Stay, 
play and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What is the difference between masa harina and cornmeal? Masa harina is a very soft corn flour made from finely ground hominy or dried white corn kernels that have been soaked in a diluted solution of calcium hydroxide. The word masa literally translates as dough. When combined with baking powder, salt, lard, and a little broth, masa makes the soft, spongy dough used to make tamales. On the other hand, cornmeal is usually made from yellow corn and has a much coarser texture, making it just the thing to give fried seafood that crunchy goodness. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Hot tamales and the red hot, yes, yeah, she got them for Every year, the tiny Mississippi Delta town of Greenville celebrates the region's famous hot tamale with a weekend-long festival. In 2016, the late Julia Reed, a proud Greenville native, invited me to see for myself how much of a stir this festival was causing in her sleepy little southern town. And boy, what a stir it was. Bringing along my trusty digital recorder, I made sure to document my trip. Here are some highlights of my experience at the 2016 Delta Hot Tamale Festival. The Delta Hot Tamale Festival kicked off with a classic small town parade. A fire truck led the way, followed by an antique car that carried the festival's queen and king, Betty Jo Brent Boyd and her brother, Howard Brent. How's it feel to be the king of the hot tamales? Man, I don't know, but uh, I'm thrilled to death that we're just having a good time to be king for a day, be treated like a peasant tomorrow, but that's all right. Uh, with that, I'm going to go on to the official blessing of the hot tamale with Mr. Hank Burdine. I want you to look around today as we come through this wonderful hot tamale festival. Look at all our brothers and sisters from all parts of the world, from all colors and all creeds. We gathered here today honoring the lowly hot tamale that has brought so many of us together and it, it means so much to us all here in the Delta and all over the United States. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. 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 
As the hot tamale competition approached and tamale makers from across the Delta put the finishing touches on their booths, I set out to discover just what it takes to make an award-winning tamale. Oh my, did I find some characters along the way. When, when you die, and I die and you go to heaven, be look me up, I'll be the one making the hot tamale in heaven. Then what is your name, sir? My name is Willie Harmon. I know that goes without saying about your tamales, because that's all anybody could talk about was hot tamale heaven. That's right. You, if you really want to know the truth, when it comes to hot tamale, I'm God. You hear me? Amen. That's well, we're right. in heaven. That's right. My name is Valley Scott Mitchell. The reason they're so good, we put a lot of tender love and care in each tamale we make. It's all about the love. Yes. My name is Malcolm Dye, and my hot tamales are sold as Mr. Hot Tea Mollies. And where are your tamales originating from? Uh, out of Cleveland, Mississippi. I run Katie's Kitchen. I do beef, chicken, venison, seafood, Mexican, and eggplant tamales. I'm not in it to win or to say that I have the best hot tamale. My customers have to tell me that, but I just love to cook. I is Jean Weathers, and I is Mama's Hot Tamales. Well, it's a lot of work making is. tamales, isn't it? Uh, I have a little machine. It's called the Tamale King. But anyway, you, and I put my meat in there, and it squirts them out so that they'll all come out the same size. And then we hand roll them in the uh, mazel. We use a beef brisket, and it is a homemade, handmade, and it's made with a lots of love. No machine at all. Handmade, all handmade. My name is Cynthia Maga. And I'm Rick Maga. My name is Jewel McCain, and I own Solly's Hot Tamales in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Here is the original show of Hot Tamales. And where are you all out at? Uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Oh, so you're right here local. Right here locally. How long have you been making tamales? Since 1982. We've been making hot tamales 40 years. Right over there, whenever used to be a store there called Steinmont, and we start off selling hot tamales in a little wooden cart, a little bit bigger than that with some bicycle ties on it, and now we is USDA approved. We officially started making hot tamales to sell in the 60s. I've been making tamales since about 1990. So it's a great family tradition. Well, actually, I started it. Uh, and there's, I don't know what my kids are going to do. It might die when I do. I don't know. I hope not. But uh, Surely you're sharing the recipe with them. I will when I get a little older. I'm only 61 now. i got 20 more years to do this at least. So. 34 years. 34 years. Is it your recipe or is it a family recipe? No, it's Mr. Solly's recipe. He taught me in 1982, and I've been doing it ever since. So who was Mr. Solly? The owner and founder of Solly's Hot Tamales. He started in Vicksburg in 1939. How many tamales do you make in preparation for the festival? Anywhere from 250 to 500. My goodness. I know, it just depends on what time, if I have enough time to do it. Do you sell out? I do. 
About 900 dozen. 900 dozen? Yeah. But well, everybody I talk to keeps telling me about your tamales, so I'm I know the, you're doing something I'm, good. I'm the man. How many tamales did you make in preparation for today? I lost count. <laughs> All I gotta say is I'm tired of looking at tamales for a while. The best tamale makers in the hot tamale capital of the world, Greenville, Mississippi. The Hot Tamama, who announced the cook-off winners, said there were over 40 varieties of tamales entered in the competition. Hot Tamale Heaven got first place in the meat category. Well, congratulations. If I had to do this all over again, all over again, I would make hot tamale. That's how much I love it. For the celebrity chef competition, Regina Charbonneau of King's Tavern in Natchez was declared the winner after several failed attempts in years past. Regina, congratulations. You finally won. How long have you been after this prize? This was the third time. The third time's the charm. I was starting to feel like the Susan Lucci of the Tamale Festival. The first year I did smoked catfish tamales with the salsa verde. And last year I did my brisket tamales, but I got beat by um, Herb Saint, Rebecca, and it was a good fair win. But I felt like, you know, these are really good. I'm going to do it again. And I just upped my presentation a little bit with the beet curls and in the little buckets, and it worked. So I'm so thrilled. Also a winner that day was Bill Jones of Koshan. Billy, congratulations. Thank you very much. I am very happy to be the tamale king of the Delta. I am a longtime eater, first time maker of tamales, so uh, I just basically made it as simple as I could and made every ingredient taste as, as best as I could, and, and then, uh, you know, I think it just falls into place after that. It was, uh, you know, smoky braised short rib, a nice fatty pork lard masa harina, so you have a corn flavor, and then uh, a, a sweet roasted bitter Wahio chili sauce that had some tomatoes and roasted garlic in it, and I think all those flavors really work well together. Great job. Congratulations. We'll see you at home at Koshan. Oh, thank you very much. Next, contestants in the hot tamale eating competition attempted to consume as many hot tamales as they could in just five minutes. Last year's champ, Tony Johnson, was just six tamales short of a victory. Actually, I ate 24, but they only gave me credit for 22. Because what happened was the guy was sitting next to me, the lady pulled my bag. And she said, you're supposed to put the wrapping in the bag. I just put it in the boy's bag next door. So, I mean, you know, it's it, no big deal. Are you coming back to compete next year, you think? No, I think I'm done. You're done with your competition. If you don't show up, I... <laughs> Let him have his fun. Let him have fun. He doing it. He doing good. The he Tony was referring to was this year's reigning champion, Dectric Bolden. My name is Dectric Bolden. I'm glad to be a winner again. I've been a winner four out of five times since they had the hot tamale contest here in Greenville, Mississippi. So how many tamales did you eat? I ate 27. 27 in five minutes. Five minutes. How do you prepare for the contest? Well, um, I just eat a lot on a regular basis. Will you be back next year? I'll be back next year. I want 30. I, once I get 30, I'll sit down.
from 2016, Sounds from the Delta Hot Tamale Festival in Greenville, Mississippi. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>